0: Take your Bible and let's make our way to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll pause in our study of Matthew on this resurrection, special resurrection day, and focus our attention on that resurrection and the realities that are ours. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we will read some of this. We cannot read this entire chapter, it's the longest of the letter. But we will read some of it to begin our time and to set the tone for our study this morning. Join me in reading silently as I read out loud, beginning in verse number one of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this, again, is the word of God to us for our consideration and for our submission this morning. Verse one. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Then verse 6 says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. Verse number 12 begins the argument of this text, though he has alluded to it. Paul says in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Skip over to the final portion of this chapter and we will come back and fill in the gaps in just a moment, but we we'll conclude this chapter with a verse that for many of us, I believe, is one of the verses we pass by. Verse number 58, the concluding thought of this section from the Apostle Paul. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, that's a familiar verse, but it's not a familiar context for us as we consider it this morning. And this morning, I want to consider just verse 58 with you. I'd like for us to take time to to immerse ourselves in what we find in this little closing sentence from the Apostle Paul on this masterpiece. That is chapter 15 of First Corinthians. The resurrection is not a Once a year holiday, right? This is not something that we celebrate once. Can you imagine if the cross of Jesus Christ had a day and we got together to have cross day? Can you imagine if if all we ever thought of the incarnation was on Christmas Day? It never came up at any other time in our existence. We had one holiday holiday. To Remember the incarnation and one holiday to remember the cross and one holiday to remember the resurrection. We would be sad Christians. The resurrection was never intended to be a holiday. And we will not treat it as such today. We will take our cue and allow this to be a special focus for today. But this is the highlight of the gospel. It is a key component to our faith and it is to be a steadfast part of our doctrine the resurrection is not a negotiable part of our faith you may have come here this morning thinking I came for the Easter sermon and so let's get the holiday sermon out of the way or you may have come today and thought well I don't know that I really buy this whole resurrection thing but it seems right that we go to church at least on Easter the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a non-negotiable component of the gospel As we just read, the Apostle Paul commending us in verse number one and verse number two, there is a gospel. There is a gospel, and that gospel includes the resurrection, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection is directly connected, finally, as a way of introduction to our lives. And you may have come here this morning thinking, you know, we've been to how many Easter services in our lives How many times have we come to an Easter Sunday? They're pretty much all the same. I'd like us to consider verse 58 this morning because I believe verse 58 highlights this reality that the resurrection is intended to be directly connected to your daily lives, as in today and tomorrow and Thursday and whatever happens on Saturday and the next month and the next year, the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us as believers is to be connected closely to our daily lives. And I, with you, often fail to consider the resurrection and its implications in my Christian life. So, this morning, you may have come with one or more of these misconceptions that this is merely a holiday. That it is up for debate as to what happened in the resurrection. And that the resurrection has any connection to your life. And if you've come with any of those or any other distractions to our time this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 sets us in order so that we can rightly appreciate value and be impacted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 stands as that passage that takes the Easter story and throws it in our laps so that we can deal with it and the Spirit can use it in dealing with us. 1 Corinthians 15 begins with, the resurrection is outlined in the first eleven verses as a gospel issue um, it is It is a gospel component. Notice back in verse number one and two, Paul says, "The gospel I preached to you, which you received, that is which, which you accepted, in which you stand currently, and by which you are being saved, looking forward to glorification." If you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believe for I delivered to you of first importance here are the primary truths that the apostle Paul gave as the gospel Christ died for our sins substitutionary atonement he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that is dead and buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures if we miss the resurrection. If we misunderstand. Or misinterpret. Or ignore the resurrection. We are we are at risk of damaging the gospel. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul addresses false teachers. Who were claiming that there was no resurrection. And the people who were buying into this false teaching. He addresses them. And he brings the resurrection. As a gospel issue to bear on their lives. He says it's truth. It's a non-negotiable truth. In verse number 20, he picks up and says it's true about Jesus. If it's not true about any human, it's not true about Jesus. And Paul argues it is true about Jesus. And therefore, at the conclusion of the chapter in verses thirty five through fifty seven, we find that the resurrection is true for dead believers and for living believers both dead and living believers at the return of Jesus Christ, when he comes in triumph, will experience the fruit of resurrection. And this is the culmination that leads up to verse number 58. In fact, it's probably helpful for us to notice what Paul says in verse number 42. In verse 42, Paul says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. That is what goes into the ground is perishable. It decays. It is fading away. What is raised from the ground is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a supernatural body. If there is a natural body, there also is a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, verse 45, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. It is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man from dust. The second man is from heaven. That is Jesus Christ, the second Adam. As was the man of dust, so also are those of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those of the dust. Uh, who are of heaven just as we have borne the image of the man of dust we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven Do you see the connection here those who are dead in christ will be like christ the resurrection will happen dead people in the ground will receive new bodies that will be imperishable that will never decay and never die and this is the hope of all of us who have loved ones who have already died They are spiritually in the presence of the Lord upon the moment of death, but their body is yet to be resurrected. But Paul goes on and he he begins in verse 50, and now he says, but even those who are alive, and this is something the Corinthians and all believers until the Apostle Paul reveals this, had not known or had not considered. As Paul says, he shares with them a mystery. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. You know this from our Bible study. Mystery does not mean Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew mysteries. This isn't a mystery novel or a mystery movie kind of mystery. A mystery is something that previously was unrevealed in the word of God. So in the Old Testament, there is no instruction about living people receiving the second coming of Jesus Christ. What is going to happen when when living people experience Christ's coming? Well, if they're in Christ, Paul describes what will happen. Here's the mystery. We shall not all sleep. Not everyone will die before Christ comes in glory. But we shall all be changed. So everyone will experience resurrection transformation. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So Paul says here that the, there are two groups of Christians, really, there are two groups of people who now live in Christ. There are those who have died, who sleep, and there are those who are living. So we have those who will receive resurrection and those who will be raptured. But in the rapture and in the resurrection, both will enjoy the fruit of what Christ accomplished in being raised from the dead on the third day. So these realities, these arguments, if you've never studied 1 Corinthians 15, let me highly commend that you give your week to it. as a special meditation. Paul concludes that it is this resurrection transformation that removes the sting of death. Verses that are very familiar to us, verse 54, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Why does the resurrection remove the sting of death? Because verse 56 explains the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ coming, his incarnation of which we spoke briefly before we sang that familiar tune this morning. The incarnation established the beginning process for us to enjoy victory. The cross is the centerpiece of human history. It was there that our sin was transferred and the guilt of our sin was placed upon the chosen son. It was there that the father's wrath was poured out in its entirety upon his own holy son. But it was the resurrection that culminated the victory. While the enemy bruised the heel of the sun. The resurrection crushed the skull of the enemy. While at the cross the enemy no doubt considered victory was his. The empty tomb sealed his fate in defeat. It was there that the victory was won. And it is... Our thanks to God through Christ for that victory. That brings us then to verse number 58. And based upon all that Paul has argued through this masterpiece of First Corinthians chapter 15. He now brings us to what Paul so often brings us to. Therefore. In your ESV translation you have a therefore at the front end of verse number 58. And it is a critical Therefore. Literally, it could be translated so then based upon what has just been said, based upon the reality of gospel implications in the resurrection, based upon Jesus's resurrection and the truthfulness of it, based upon the dead believers who will be resurrected in the future when Christ returns and based upon the living believers who will be given new bodies in resurrection power at the return of Christ. Now this. Now this is how it should affect us. This is what Easter means 364 days of the year. This is how it comes to rest upon our lives. Paul here is not talking to unbelievers. If you're here this morning and you're, you're not a follower of Christ, you do not have new life, you've never forsaken your sin and your own efforts at righteousness and placed your faith in... In Jesus Christ alone. His work at the cross. His victory at the grave. Paul is not addressing you. We're glad that you're here. We trust that you'll hear the truth. And respond to the truth this morning. But notice in verse 58. Who Paul is addressing. A very unique group of people. My beloved brothers. Or brothers and sisters. This is a general word. Paul here is speaking to the church at Corinth. And the Holy Spirit of God. Is speaking directly to us who are beloved brothers and sisters as we are the indirect recipients of this careful instruction from the Apostle. So based upon all that is true about the resurrection, verse 58 now comes to bear on our lives. You see, the gospel and doctrine and truth Always, always, always is connected to life. The Bible knows no break between belief and life. There is no biblical gap between head and heart and feet. What is truth and what the Holy Spirit of God gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to embrace and believe affects life. And the Apostle Paul is the ultimate example of that in his teaching. Always presenting us with therefore verses like this, so that the grand truths of the gospel that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and on the third day was raised according to the scriptures, might not be theoretical, that would never be a holiday, it would never be left in a theology class or a theological book somewhere, but would impact the lives of each and every beloved brother and sister in Christ. This morning we're going to be reminded of this one grand theme. That the resurrection of Christ is inseparably linked to the believer's growth in Christ. The resurrection of Christ then is inseparably linked to the growth of the believer in Christ now. So history has everything to do with present reality and has everything to do with future perspective. And what the Apostle Paul will do in just just one verse is He will bring this, this, this enormous concept beyond our belief, beyond our comprehension rather, that Jesus was raised from the dead and He will boil it down and step on our feet. He'll get uncomfortably close. He'll be like the Apostle James in his letter where we just want Him to back up just a hair. And He'll bring the resurrection to bear right on our lives. And that's the delight of our study this morning. The resurrection of Christ then is inseparably linked to your growth in Christ now and my growth in Christ. Okay? Three effects. Three effects that the resurrection must have on us are outlined here in verse number 58. Because the resurrection is a part of the gospel, because Jesus was raised, because the dead ones in Christ will be raised, and because the living ones in Christ at his return will receive resurrection. Transformation, these implications now come to bear on us. Number one, verse 58 commends us that the resurrection solidifies gospel resolve. The resurrection must solidify and does solidify gospel resolve. How does Easter impact my life? Well, it steals our resolve. It puts iron in our spine. Notice verse 58 says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable be steadfast immovable this is the only command in verse number 58 and paul commands based upon verses 1 through 57 so like always when we find a therefore we circle it we know it's pointing backwards and here we find paul commanding us that we steal or solidify our gospel resolved. The Corinthian believers are commanded to live out the truth of the resurrection. Belief and action always assumed to go hand in hand in our scriptures. So what is this command to us that the resurrection accomplishes steadfast and immovable? These are synonyms. These are two words that basically carry the same meaning with slightly different nuances per word. Be steadfast. The word is literally seated. Sit down. The seated concept is that someone who is seated on the ground is much more stable. They're grounded. They are not easily pushed off of their mark. The Apostle Paul here is using a spiritual concept or a physical concept for a spiritual reality. A spiritual low center of gravity is the resulting lifestyle of faith and confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, you've got to understand what we're dealing with in Corinth, right? Corinthian believers are under attack from false teachers. The danger here is a spiritual danger that false teaching will push them away from the gospel. That their faith would actually be in vain. That they would walk away from the truth that Paul had delivered to them. And So Paul says confidence in the resurrection. Confidence that Christ has been raised. Confidence that the dead in Christ will be raised and confidence that the living in Christ at His return will be transformed through resurrection power, it should and must result in steadfastness. That is, a low center of gravity. A lifestyle that is is not easily pushed. The empty tomb brings conviction about the gospel to the people of God. So when you face a family member... Who challenges the Gospel when you face a coworker who may ask an opening question about the Gospel, bringing you great anticipation and a very tight chest and a dry mouth as you start to ramble out and try to get words out about Jesus Christ, and they confront you with something and, and attempt to sway you from the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its implications on your life, part of the intention of God. In this spiritual reality is to solidify us in the gospel. And this is why Paul commands us, therefore, be steadfast. Now, if steadfastness is the positive, immovable is the negative. It's just the negative way of saying the same thing. Uh, Immovable carries a little bit more of a force behind it. The idea here is completely still, without any motion, not one flinch. Not going to move an inch no matter who says what or what comes in to my life. So the resurrection and the reality of the resurrection, Easter, if you want to call it that. Resurrection of Jesus Christ solidifies gospel resolve in us. Growing up in my house, I am. I was often reminded by my father that I was tall. That's all he would always say that to me. Just remember, Adam, you're tall. That's all. Um, because my dad was tall and then and then some. So he was taller than me, plus three times as big as I am. So if ever I attempted to, uh, I don't know, I was going to say push my weight around, but there was nothing to push around. So if I ever attempted to in any way come after him, and he used to do this about me in basketball, we'd play one-on-one. He always told me growing up, you'll never beat me in one-on-one, never. So about 16 years old, 15 years old, I started getting pretty close. He started slowing down. I was on the upswing. And we just stopped playing one-on-one all of a sudden. And there was no more offers of one-on-one. You're tall, that's all. I remember as a kid, my dad, my sister and I, can, we definitely could have a good laugh about this. I can remember my dad standing in our house, and this is just a funny family moment, and crouching down and saying, okay, go ahead, give it your best shot. And we would run with everything we had and try to push him off of his mark. My dad is 6'6", six, 2-something. Six, I wouldn't want to insult him because he can probably hear this and watch the video, and I don't want to do that. I'll face his wrath again. Big man with a 32-inch inseam. I mean, low center of gravity. And so my sister would run, and of course, she would kind of try to knock him over, but really she was just hugging him. It was, you know, it was awkward. Then I would run with all the gusto I had in my bony body and ram myself into my dad as hard as I could And you know what happened. I landed on the floor in front of him and he would smile at me and say, you're tall. That's all right. Okay. the idea here of steadfast and immovable is my pops squared down low center of gravity. You weren't going to move him. He was made to be an offensive lineman. And Paul here is commending the believers who have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the resurrection of Christ is a low center of gravity spiritually. It solidifies us. It gives us confidence and boldness. This is not it. We don't just live here. You can take my life, but you can't touch me because resurrection is my reality. It was true for Christ. It'll be true for me. I will either see him and be changed like him, or I will die and be raised to likeness. This truth was never intended to be a holiday. The resurrection of Jesus Christ then has everything to do with our growth in Christ now. And we miss this so often. I miss this. Paul was genuinely concerned that professing Christians, believers, That they would watch out for potential wavering from the gospel. Brothers and sisters, do not become arrogant. Thinking you stand, Paul said. Why? Unless you fall. So let's be reminded this morning. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the then implications of that resurrection on us as his people. It's intended to solidify us, to steal us in our conviction for the gospel. Steadfast. Immovable. These are Paul's words for confident conviction. If our theology is truth. And if our theology is embraced in our belief, our spiritual lives are steadied as a result. Never, never, never. Allow your mind to think that the actions of your life, the attitudes of your heart and the thoughts of your mind are in some way disconnected from the beliefs of your life. We've said this little phrase a thousand times if we've said it once. You say what you say and you do what you do because you think what you think and you think what you think because you believe what you believe about God, about his word and about yourself. You say what you say and you do what you do because you think what you think. And you think in that moment what you think because of what you believe about God, about his word, about the resurrection. And about yourself, The resurrection of Christ, then is inseparably linked to the believer's growth in Christ. Now, second effect of the resurrection that we find in verse 58, just carrying on in this little verse, quite simply, the resurrection fuels gospel work. The resurrection fuels gospel work. It solidifies gospel resolve and it fuels gospel work. Notice what Paul says. He doesn't command again. The command is to be steadfast, to not shake or move off of the gospel. And the result now is followed in the next phrase always abounding in the work of the Lord. What does the steadfast, immovable, convinced believer in the gospel look like? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Paul is building now upon the command for theological stability to be shown in the life of the believer. Always. This is a word that Paul uses quite often, but usually it's in reference to his prayer life. You know this from reading Paul's letters, right? Repeatedly he'll say, always on every remembrance of you, we give thanks for your faith or Always, always, always expressing gratitude. Praying without ceasing. These are the always words that Paul usually uses. But here he directs it at lifestyle. Always abounding. Not a, u- a word that we use often in our vocabulary. Not in my vocabulary. Potentially you say abounding daily. I don't know. The word seems to miss something in translation for me. Uh, the idea here is excelling. And probably the most... The most helpful understanding of this is overflowing. So so many of our lives spiritually could be described as almost like wringing out a rag. Right. So, I mean, we're just squeezing out the last drop of worship that we got. We're squeezing out the last bit of service. I really don't want to serve, but I probably should. All right, I'll do it. Uh, That's just wringing out the last drip of the rag. But the picture of the one who is steadfast and immovable, who is solidified in gospel confidence, the one who has been impressed by the realities of the resurrection, the one who knows there is life to come because the tomb is empty and has been since three days after the place of the skull. That one is always abounding and the word is overflowing. This picture is one from the restaurant when the young waiter comes to the young lady's table. He gets a little enamored with the young lady as he looks at her and he's pouring water into her cup. And before he knows it, he looks down and there's water pouring out of the sides of her cup. Overflow. There's so much, there's extra. And Paul here references the resurrection of chapter 15, all of its implications to the believer's life in the work of the Lord always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why would we live for anything but the work of the Lord, the extension of the gospel, the spread of the kingdom, the building up of the body of Christ? Why would we live for anything but these realities? These should be the overflow of our hearts because the resurrection happened and the resurrection will happen. You see this? Therefore, because it is true and because it will be true, Don't move from the gospel and let the work for the gospel abound. The resurrection is fuel in your tank, brothers and sisters. You are dry spiritually. You're desperate for motivation. You feel like you're running on empty. This is the fuel. It's the resurrection glory of Jesus Christ because it's yours, because it's mine and hearts that have believed and come to come to embrace the reality of the gospel that Jesus died for our sins. was buried and rose in victory. Those are lives that are motivated out of gratitude to abound, constantly overflowing in work for the Lord. This is not work to earn the Lord's approval. Understand the difference between one who abounds in work for the Lord and is storing up wrath from God and the one who abounds in work for the Lord and is storing up glory for God. There are two different people. They may look exactly the same. Because one's motivation is not the glorious work that Christ has accomplished on their behalf. One's motivation is to earn favor from God. Paul here is addressing us with the resurrection freshly on our minds. The work is done. The victory has been won. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who gives us victory. There is nothing to be won between us and God. Christ accomplished all of it. Therefore, we abound in our work for the Lord. Not to earn His favor, but because His favor has been earned by His Son. How could we do anything else? How could we live for anything else? How could the focus of our lives be set on anything else but the work of the Lord? So this is the second effect of the resurrection that Paul brings to bear in verse 58. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and its implications on us solidify our gospel resolve and they fuel our gospel work. Gordon Fee his helpful commentary on first Corinthians says this. There are those kind of activities in which believers engage that are specifically Christian. There are those kind of activities in which believers engage that are specifically Christian. Or specifically in the interest of the gospel. This seems to be what Paul has in mind here. This does not mean that we simply abound in all of our life. Paul narrows it down to say in the work of the Lord. You know enough, I think, about Grace Church to know that this is not your best life now. This is not you succeeding in every earthly endeavor. This is the resurrection informing the life you live for the spread of the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, are you abounding? Am I abounding in Christian fellowship that is actual truth-bearing, in love, with other believers within our local assembly? Are we abounding, overflowing, in willing expression and truth-bearing to those who do not know Jesus Christ of the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we overflowing and abounding in worship? Do you enter into these times of collective worship with a week of secret worship on your heart so that you come in overflowing in worship Not squeezing out the last drop. Not trying to crank something up. You're not pulling on the string the whole time we're worshiping together. Trying to get life in the engine. Paul here says the resurrection and its implications. It fuels the tank. It fuels our gospel work. The resurrection of Christ then. The the empty tomb then. Has everything to do with our growth in Christ now. Okay, third effect that the resurrection has on us in verse 58. The resurrection work informs gospel expectation. The resurrection informs gospel expectation. Solidifies our gospel resolve, fuels our gospel work, and informs our gospel expectation. Paul closes out this application verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, the context here is so critical and we have not been able to do justice to the context of this entire chapter. But it's particularly important here because Paul uses a few words that may have even rung a bell in your mind as you heard them just now or saw them on your page. Notice the end of verse 58. Your labor is not in vain. Go back to verse number 2 of chapter 15. And notice what Paul's concern is. His concern in verses 1 and 2 is that the gospel that was preached to the Corinthian believers, if they don't hold fast, would result in belief in vain. Verse number 2. He is concerned that there lives would be vanity that their profession of faith in christ would waver and that it would be for naught. verse number 12 now if christ proclaimed is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead notice what paul's argument is but if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even christ has been raised and if christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain you see the contrast that Paul is presenting if there's no resurrection, everything to do with the Christian life is a colossal waste of time. If Jesus Christ is not alive, we are the most pathetic people alive. Because we have, we, we have staked our claim on something that's not true. And so Paul is concerned that first that the gospel that is truth, if if the Corinthian believers are swayed by this false teaching, that there is no resurrection, that their faith would be in vain. He argues then that if Christ is not raised, his preaching is in vain and their faith is in vain. And he concludes by saying, based on what they know, it's as if Paul comes full circle, their labor is not in vain. Paul ends with confident expectation and the resurrection informs our gospel expectation. What is it that we know that Paul addresses in verse 58? Knowing, knowing these things, theological truths that in the Lord. Your labor. Your work is not in vain. So you are always abounding in the work of the Lord because there is fuel for the tank, for gospel work. And Paul concludes this section by informing us that the resurrection also informs our expectation. Because of what we know, we now can be confident that our labor is not in vain. Notice what he says, knowing that in the Lord, here's the sphere in which gospel work takes place. Those who are in Christ, as Paul would use throughout his Colossian letter. Those who are in Christ or those who exist in the Lord, that is, who bear resurrection victory in them with new hearts presented by Christ, work on the cross. This is the sphere in which it takes place. And that affirms for the believers that what is in the Lord in their labor. Will not be in vain. Now, what, what does that mean? It's not in vain. That means it has lasting value. What you do in the Lord, how you serve the Lord, has lasting value. And it only has lasting value if you're going to live for eternity in the presence of a living Savior. If you have a dead Savior who's been rotted in a tomb in Jerusalem, then it's empty, folks. This is nonsense, but if he is alive and if he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, there is no vanity in our service in the Lord. There is no vanity in our work and labor and toil for the glory of God. There is no vanity in the pursuit of Christ's likeness. There is no vanity in life with our local assembly within the church. There is no vanity. In bringing glory and honor through worship of Christ, because he is alive. And the resurrection, it informs our perspective. It it informs our expectation. We anticipate heavenly realities because the tomb is empty. If it's not empty, if there's bones somewhere that are going to be found and put on the history channel, that it's Jesus. It's true. It's all vain. Paul's clear explanation validates the resurrection of Jesus and everyone who is in Christ. And that informs the expectation of true believers. Notice this. Don't miss this. The resurrection is the basis of any eternal perspective. See, boy, I just really struggle with worldliness. I mean, I'm just so worldly. I think about today. I think about this life and it really consumes me. My decisions are because of now. And therefore, the long term goal of now. And my expectations. Are for this life. I anticipate this life. When somebody says, what are you shooting for? What makes you tick? It's this life. It's to get more here. It's to get better stuff here. It's to have certain kind of happiness here. Where do we get an eternal perspective? How is it that God works in us so that we look we look past past here and now and we see future eternal realities? How how does that happen? How is that ever accomplished? The resurrection. Jesus Christ is alive. Therefore, our hope and confidence becomes settled in him that we will live forever. So we don't live for tomorrow. We live for 200 years from now. This is what the resurrection does. The resurrection informs our eternal perspective and it motivates our counterintuitive, countercultural persecution, inviting lifestyle. You say, you know, I'm I think a lot about eternity, but I certainly don't talk about it. I mean, what would ever motivate someone to talk to a coworker? I mean, you just said talk to a family member about the gospel. That would infer that I have to tell them that they're sinner going to hell. Why would I ever do that? On what basis would I ever have the confidence to talk to someone and say, Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. There is no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved. What would I ever, why would I do that? Because there's an eternity coming. That's why the resurrection happened. Jesus has been raised. Those who are dead will be raised. Those who are living at the coming of Christ will be transformed. And Paul is clear the resurrection should inform our perspective and our expectation. What we know today has everything to do with what we do today and why we do what we do today. Sometimes when we're in sin. Now, that plural part just makes it sound nicer. Sometimes when I'm in sin. I catch myself thinking. I don't know where that came from. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I talked that way to my wife. I don't know why I thought those thoughts. Because in that moment, I have not preached the gospel again to myself. My mind is not informed by gospel realities. And because my flesh has been granted access and has been surrendered, I've offered up my instruments, Romans 6 says. To unrighteousness. Because what I know. And what my mind is focused upon. And what my heart resonates in. Has everything to do with what I do. And why I do what I do. The resurrection. Informs our gospel expectations. It fuels our gospel work. And it solidifies. Our gospel resolve. This is what the empty tomb. Means. This afternoon at lunch. This is what it means tomorrow when the boss is slanderous toward you. This is what it means when you're in an untimely accident. This is what it means when trials of various types come to you. Confidence in the gospel. Fuel for overflowing. And a perspective and an expectation that this is not in vain. There is an eternity to come. My Christ Is the first fruit. He's led the way. We will receive this same resurrection. Now for those of you who are here. With us. Gathered this morning. Who may not. Have any hope of resurrection. Let me. Let me warn you. And let me commend you. To repent and believe. Say what does that mean? I mean that's. That's Christian lingo. If I've ever heard it. Repent, turn away, cease from trusting your own efforts to get you to heaven. It will never work. There is no one who is righteous, not even one that includes you. So turn from your sin, turn from your efforts to be righteous, which is just more sin in the presence of a holy God who created you. Turn away from that and believe what you cannot see. That Jesus Christ was and is the Son of God who came and lived a perfect obedience to God's standard. The only one who came and lived in perfect obedience to God. Went to a cross and at that cross bore the wrath of God for your sin. Isaiah chapter 53 says that our iniquities were placed upon Second Corinthians 521 says he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Turn away from sin, turn away from your efforts at righteousness and believe what you cannot see that at the cross, a substitute son of God bore your punishment. Three days later was raised that you might know eternal life. If your eyes are open and your ears are hearing and your heart is crying out, you will receive grace. Do not hesitate. This is the time. This is the era of salvation. You do not know the number of your days. Repent and believe. Believers, this morning, let me ask you a few questions by way of application. We never want to leave a text, even an application text, without asking ourselves how does this come down and, and work in my life? So let me ask you a few questions. Grace group leaders take note of these for this week's study time. How can you rightly apply the resurrection to your daily battle with sin? And I don't mean think about it. How are the, what are the practical steps that you might pursue that would help you appropriate resurrection reality to your battle with sin? Listen. Listen. Brothers and sisters, if if we wake up in the morning, we get down beside our bed, we say, father, this is this day is for you. I, I want this day to be for you. We're in the we're in the car on the way to work and we're committing ourselves to that for that day to Christ and his glory. And we say it's because Jesus has died in my place that I desire to live for you. Good. And it's because he he was raised on the third day. That I ask for grace Because there is power and victory in him. The resurrection has implications. How can you apply those implications in your daily battle with sin? That's a question for you to consider. And for you to talk with your brothers and sisters about this week as the Lord gives opportunity. Number two, how can you and I accurately apply the resurrection in the gospel? That is, when we address others with the gospel, how do we bring the resurrection to bear in the gospel? I think often we just kind of tack it on at the end. Oh, yeah, he raised from the dead three days later, too. That's part of the story. Um, So it's all about this. And then, you know, well, I don't. Yes, he's he's alive. There's real weight to the resurrection. So we've got to think about how do we bring the resurrection? How do we bring the implications of the of the resurrection down into our gospel presentation? I think that's reasonable for us as God's people and missionaries for the kingdom to consider uh, this morning and this week. Number three, this is just a question for you to consider. Has the resurrection become an afterthought in your life? And if so, how will you renew your mind with resurrection realities? What steps can you take? How can you study? What can you pray and journal that would help you consider these implications from 1 Corinthians 15, from Luke 24, from Matthew 28? The glorious resurrection, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. So that we are more and more convinced that the resurrection of Christ then is inseparably linked to our growth in Christ now. This is the glory of life in Christ. Knowing Him, this is life eternal. The risen Lord of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this study We need, we, need, we need this Word. You, in your wisdom, have given it to us and preserved it for us. And this morning, we want to submit ourselves here at the end. We began by singing and praying through song that you would speak to us, that you would feed us, that you would renew our minds, you would shape and fashion us. Oh, Father, we want to be conformed to what you value. We want to think your thoughts after you. What you say is truth. We want to dominate our lives as truth. And so we are thankful for verse 58. It helps us. It takes us from thousands of years distance. Right back to that tomb. As we consider its emptiness. And the effect on our daily lives. As your children. We want to bring you glory and honor. Not so that you'll notice us. You could notice us no more than you do. You love us with the love you have for your own son. But because we desire out of gratitude to please you. And to bring you glory and honor. And to make your name famous here in our community. Work these ends as you have planned through your Holy Spirit's power. Who is with us as your people. And may your spirit run freely to those whom you desire to open their eyes, crush their hearts under the weight of their sin. Give them eyes of faith that they might see Christ. Turn from their own way and trust you. We'll give you praise and honor as only you are worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen.